danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 356 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by today's guest, Ori Peleg, who I believe is somewhere in Israel. I forgot to ask exactly where. Um, Ori is, well, I'll give you the, the bio first, and then I'll explain a little bit about the uh, interview. So Ori is a uh, professional poker player, a coach, manager of a staking for profit uh, operation. A lot of this runs under the heading of Gorilla Poker. He is also an instructor at Run It Once. Um, he is also a former Magic the Gathering world champion. He was the 2007 Magic the Gathering world champion. Interestingly, Ori is not the first MTG world champion uh, we've had on this uh, podcast, which is not a Magic the Gathering podcast. Um, we had uh, Andre Coimbra, who was the 2005 uh, MTG world champion. Uh, he's been on the show twice. And now we've had Ori, who was the 2007 champion. Um, so this, I thought, was a, a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed talking to Ori. I felt like we hit, we hit it off quite well. Um, neither of us really knew much about the other coming into this. Um, this was arranged largely by uh, John the Lawyer, who some of you may know as uh, both a former guest on this show and also someone who has uh, recommended some of uh, our favorite guests of all time. Um including Dick Carson, uh, which is another old uh, episode. If you're, those of you who enjoy uh, stories from the early days of poker, I would encourage you to check out our uh, three-part interview with uh, Dick Carson, who was like an old-school road gambler in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, uh, that was one of the many great people that John put us in touch with. So you know, because John had been responsible for uh, so many of our best guests, uh, I, you know, I, I made it a priority, even though... Um, well, yeah, I'm just you know when when John says like you should have so and so on the show, I'm I'm gonna track that person down and, and try to get them on the show, and uh, you know this is another home run for John. Um, uh, so you know it, it, we came into it, you know we, we kind of had to um, meet each other a little bit, but I felt like we hit it off pretty quickly. Um, it, you know we think about a lot of things in poker in a similar way. I enjoyed his style of humor. Um, and I think we ended up having a really interesting uh, conversation that's pretty heavy on strategy. Um, I actually would have liked to have gotten a little bit more into kind of the arc of his career, uh, talk a little bit about the you know background in magic and how that informs poker. But, um, you know, there's only so much time in these interviews. And we were having such interesting conversations about uh, poker strategy and poker theory. Uh, I imagine not too many of you will object to having a more strategy heavy interview. Uh, and, and Ori is certainly a great person to do this with. Um, I mean, he, he really you know, knows, knows his stuff, is a, a high-stakes uh, player, high-level player, and um, very good at explaining concepts as well. You know, those two things don't necessarily go hand-in-hand, hand, but um, yeah, I, I think there's just a, a ton of good stuff in here. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, I hope that you will enjoy listening as well. 
Um, so I'm not going to do a separate strategy segment because there is a ton of strategy in the interview itself. I do want to give you one little bit of context because it occurred to me that we kind of start talking about this uh, blue line and red line stuff, and um, some people may not know what this is. Um, so if you are looking at a chart, um, Poker Tracker is kind of the main source of this, but I think a lot of the, the databases have this sort of thing. Um, you, you know, you can look at like your profit over time, and one of the ways that you can break that down, like if you have a database of 100,000 hands or something, one of the ways that you can break that down is by looking at your showdown winnings versus non-showdown winnings. And I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, there, there's the money that you win in pots that go to showdown, and then there's also money that you win in pots that don't go to showdown. So the red line is the money that you win in pots that don't go to showdown. Um, you know, it, it's commonly thought, and I think this is largely true, that like the way to have a better red line, like many many people kind of struggle to have a break even, let alone a positive red line, um, which is not the end of the world. I mean, it, it's entire like what matters is the bottom line. You know, like what what matters is how much money do you win at the end of the day. Um, whether that comes from showdown or non-showdown winnings is not necessarily the most important thing in the world. Um, I mean, it's commonly thought that the way to improve your your red line, your non-showdown winnings, is to be more aggressive. Um, or it makes an interesting point in this interview that like you. You can also do it by being very loose. You know, like you're you're not going to lose money in pots that don't go to showdown if you know you take most pots to showdown. So I mean, that's just a good example of how improving your red line does not necessarily mean improving your bottom line. Like you still have to play well um, in in the pots that uh, in, well in both the pots that go to showdown and the pots that don't. But you know, we do a lot of uh, talk about like red line, blue line, and, and it occurred to me we didn't actually explain that. So um, I thought some of you might benefit from having that context. Um, so you can check out more of Ori's stuff at uh, GorillaPoker.com, and that's uh, Gorilla, like G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, Poker. Um, as I said, he's also an instructor at Run It Once. And if you want more strategy from this show, or you just want to, and or <laughs> you just want to support this show, um, you know, as you know, we don't really have ads on the show right now, except for uh, just you know to let you all know about the Patreon. So you can get uh, daily strategy segments from myself, from Nate, from Carlos by supporting us on Patreon. You do that at Patreon.com/ThinkingPokerDaily. Uh, that both helps us to keep this regular show going and gets you access to a lot more strategy. Thanks very much for listening, and please enjoy this interview with Lori Pelleg. Lori Pelleg, thank you for uh, making time for us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, so, you know, we've, we've chatted a little bit, and um, I guess we, we've, uh, hopefully by the same person, uh, you, you were recommended to me and, uh, and, and I to you, but um, my, my introduction to you really was just from watching some of your um, videos that you have on, on YouTube right now, and I'm aware that there's um, hours and hours, maybe even hundreds of hours of, uh, of your material out there that, that I haven't seen, but I definitely felt kind of an immediate resonance in um, how you were thinking about uh, poker and, and in particular how you were thinking about like the relationship between um, 
I guess just like how we as humans should be using you know, solvers and, and the kind of uh, software that's um, that's out there now. So I guess I, I just want to make sure I, I give people the heads up that um, your your YouTube channel, uh, Gorilla Poker, is is fantastic, and um, I'm sure that your, your material on um, Run It Once and and the other the material that you have uh, that you sell directly, I'm, I'm sure, is quite good as well. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Actually. Uh I think my first video on Run It Once uh, was exactly about uh, these kind of heuristics where the first video I ever made is about something called showdown value bluffs. Is, is that a term you've heard about? Uh, no, I'm, I would like to hear more about it. So what, what I do is I, I review a hand, and we actually have an article about it on, on the Gorilla Poker website as well. Uh, but I, I review a hand where you can see uh, on some like A7 deuce board uh, that uh, PO solver is barreling on the turn uh, with bottom pairs. You know how, uh, I'm so, sorry, I'll, I'll, I, I sometimes uh, too much in my own head, but uh, <laughs> so it's button versus big blind hand, uh, A7 deuce board, and uh, you see solver betting one third on a flop. And then I show that on the turn it overbets uh, with most of its deuces, uh, and uh, yeah, kind of what I say in that video is that uh, if if like most people would look at the hand would be okay, yeah, deuces probably overbetting in order to triple barrel because it blocks the top range of the other player, mm -hmm. uh, and and kind of uh, move on and, and not pay too much attention to it. Um, but then I start kind of showing that uh, actually the deuce only overbets on very specific turn cards. If the board is A7 deuce, uh, you actually only overbet with bottom pair. If the turn is uh, King Queen Jack or Ten, uh, you don't overbet on a turn on any any other cards with bottom pairs. Uh, and you also fire river on very specific rivers, and you don't on other rivers. And part of the point of the video is that. Now, I know all these things because I know why the hand bets the turn. But if you don't know why it bets the turn, you're just shooting in the dark uh, whenever you try to do anything that the solver is doing. Um, did that come across okay? And, and sound usually it has... Yeah, I mean, I'm not it, it, it made sense to me. I know, you know some people have more or less uh, comfort like following uh, hand histories without uh, a video accompaniment, but I think people listening to the show are pretty accustomed to us uh, talking about hands without uh, hand history immediately in front of us. Yeah, so, so, in, so in, the, in that video, basically, uh, among other things, but the main point is to explain the concept of a showdown value bluff, uh, which is where... Uh, you bet on the turn with a bottom pair, uh, intending to both fold out better and get called by worse at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, which, I, I guess, is that something you're familiar with? Um, I, it's not a term that I've heard before. I mean, I know it's a thing that um, that happens sometimes, uh, where I guess the, the, the way that I would be tempted to explain this from the perspective of the, the big blind player is that the way that they construct their calling range relative to a big bet is you know, there are going to be certain hands uh, that like they would sort of expect to have good equity relative to your betting range, but to have poor equity realization on the river. And so those are the kinds of hands that you're getting the fold from on the deuce. So like if you're barreling 
a king, a queen, or a jack turn, and, and you're you're overbetting those. I, I imagine it's like the you know the, those second pair kinds of hands that might um, have very little hope of improving on the river and are going to have a tough time facing another big bet on the river. So you know you're you're simultaneously folding out those hands, but then you also might get called by some hands that. Um, would expect to have better equity realization on the river, you know, maybe like nut draws or something like that. Um, and so those are actually hands that the bottom pair would be ahead of on rivers. Is that the, uh, is that what's going on there? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that that's really good. Most people don't get that so quickly. Well, so, I, I yeah. mean, yeah, I, I feel like you gave me some hints in terms of which, which cards were, uh, were barreling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but still, but still it, it's good. Yeah, I mean, but you, you wrote two books about the subject, so... Uh, but yeah, the, the idea is that uh, when you're facing a really uh, polarized range from out of position, a really good hand type to call, let, let's say the board is uh, ace, seven, deuce, ten, uh, king, queen is actually, or, or king, jack, are amazing hands to call in theory because they beat all the bluffs and they have outs to the super nuts where you get to check shove the river. And, and in a lot of ways, those are actually maybe better hands to call than even a top pair. Right, because if you have like top pair no kicker, you lose to all the value hands, and you can't really improve in a mm-hmm. significant way. Um, so those hands, in theory, would make premium calls against a completely polarized range. And what PO Solver does is, whenever the out of position player has a bunch of those hands, it starts overbetting with really low pairs, uh, intending to check back every river where those draws miss, and then barrel every river where those draws hit. Because if the draws miss, you get to show down your bottom pair and, and win a decent amount. But if the draws hit, it just uses the blocker as an excuse to, to block the river. Yeah, and I guess the fact that you have no showdown value as a check. Right? Exactly. Like the, the, the hands make, that you were beating the, have improved, so yeah, now yeah. you have less incentive to check and try to get a showdown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know how we dove so deep into theory. So. <laughs> no, it, it, I, I think people will be happy to, to, to dive straight into it. Um, and th- this actually, it kind of gets to something like I've I've struggled a lot with how to explain the concept of indifference. I mean, it like I understood at a theoretical level, I understood the concept fairly well immediately. But in terms of like really understanding it at an intuitive level, it, it took me a while, I think, to like really internalize. Um, how that shows up in, in in looking at solver results, for instance, or or in actual you know practical applications while you're playing, and it's something I ended up devoting an entire chapter in my first book to trying to explain the concept of of indifference because I think it is. Um, I mean, I think you can't really understand anything else in in game theory until you understand that that concept. But I think one way of of explaining it, that, which is essentially what what you did just now, is you can think about. Um, if if you weren't doing this thing, like you know, if if, if you're not making these bets with a deuce, for instance, um, your opponent ends up having like there's a strategy that they can play against your overbetting range, which is you know I can call with this kind of hand and not with that kind of hand. So anytime there's sort of like a clear response for the opponent, I mean maybe not clear in the sense that it might not be intuitive to you know to a lot of people playing or, or listening to this or whatever, but clear in the sense of like if you 
if you weren't doing this thing, it would be a clearly profitable thing for, for the opponent to do, right? Like your, your failure to uh, execute on this particular strategic option opens up, uh, it gives your opponent incentive to, to play a certain kind of strategy. And then mm-hmm. the fact that he's doing that gives you incentive to do something different. I mean, this is like ultimately how we arrive at mixed strategies is like, well, if you never make that overbet with a deuce, then he can always make these calls with uh, not no pair. And uh, if you always overbet, I don't even know if this is a case of indifference, but um, you know, if, if you always <laughs> overbet with a deuce, then then you know he wouldn't have as much incentive to call with those not no pair hands. And the way you arrive at an equilibrium is with both of you mixing your strategies until you arrive at a point where uh, neither of you can you know do better by by betting in a higher lower frequency or, or folding in a higher lower frequency. Yeah, exactly. And and, and I guess in, in a way, my approach to to working with solvers is that rather than try to make the opponent indifferent in any spot, I want to understand the indifference. I, I think indifferences are extremely valuable, uh, but rather than trying to imitate them, uh, you want to understand, like, what would be the response if he didn't do this right, thing? Right, yeah. And, and, and then you're like, okay, is, is, is the guy I'm playing with it because, you know, doing this thing, and the answer 99% of the time is hell no, right? <laughs> So now I, I know how to beat this guy, right? Because, uh, you know, when you overbet the turn, is he calling with king-queen-high? Probably not. So don't overbet the bottom pair, right? Mm-hmm. I, there, there's a, a, I think this criticism is getting less trenchant as, as more people start to understand game theory better. But you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this idea running around that like solvers are uh, making poker play mechanical or, or turning poker players into robots or something like that. And I mean, maybe there's something to that if you're playing in like super high rollers or, or to battles between like two uh, extremely good players where maybe the best you can do really is try to um, approximate solver strategies. But in general, I think that you know looking at solvers has made me more creative, um, precisely because of what you're explaining. Where when I see indifference in a in a solver output, my goal is not like how can I randomize my play so that I'm betting exactly seventy two percent of the time with bottom pair in, in this situation. What I'm seeing there is like I have a choice. You know, th- this this is this is where there's room to be creative. If I have exactly. the nuts in position yeah. on the river, there's not room to be creative. Like there's just a, there's a clear best play, no matter who I'm playing. I mean, maybe with my bet sizing or something. But um, in in general, it's like there there's certain you know I'm I'm facing an all in bet on the river with with you know nut low. Yeah, you know, th- there's no there's no creativity. There's no choice there. But uh, so I mean, I think looking at the solver outputs gives us a sense of like where is their wiggle room? Where is it? You know, your your correct response is highly dependent on what you believe your opponent is is doing and also that you don't have to be extremely confident about that because i mean what what the indifference also means is that if you don't have any insight into what your opponent is doing it doesn't really matter what you do in those cases um like if if, if your opponent were playing um optimally in, in those cases uh, it wouldn't matter whether you bet with the deuce or not so I think you often are better off trying to guess at what your opponent is doing, especially if you think your opponent is not someone who's like much better than you are. I think you are better off trying to guess at what your opponent is doing rather than just say, well, I'm just going to try to hit whatever, like the, um, even if you knew what the optimal frequency is there, which you probably don't. Wow. Yeah. I have like three different things that, that popped into my head to talk about as you're speaking about these things. So I need to decide which one to, <laughs> to go. <laughs> randomize, but, randomize. Uh, Randomize. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, 
Yeah, first of all, any spot in which the solver is indifferent, those are like the most interesting spots to actually study what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what you're saying about poker being more mechanical, uh, I had a discussion with, with Doug Polk about this. Uh, he was studying for his Heads Up Challenge with Negrani when he was studying very, very mechanically. He was like, I want to play like the solver. That's the, the style that they teach in upswing poker and the style that Doug, you know, made millions with. Uh, always was like trying to play GTO. If the other guy makes something super obvious, obviously you will take advantage of that, but generally just play GTO. And um, yeah, that, that's one way to approach it. But uh, th there is a saying, you, you know, there are many different ways to climb the same mountain. Mm -hmm. So you can use solvers to try to play very mechanically, but you can also use them to try to play very creatively. And when you look at the high-stakes landscape, you definitely see both types of players succeeding. So the, the fact that it's not solvers making the, the game mechanical, it's people who want to make it mechanical can make it mechanical. People who want to play creative can play creative. It's, uh, no, but both, both options work if you have the inclination to do it. Okay, so this was actually a note that I took while I was looking over some of your videos on your on your YouTube channel that I wanted to ask you about, um, which is that you were, you were teasing your upcoming uh, Redline course, and um, you said, you know, obviously I don't want you to give away the, the farm here, but um, the, you thought one of the most important things for improving your Redline was a, a perspective shift in terms of, you know, what's important in poker what is your focus in poker um is this the kind of thing that that you meant by that or, or can you say more about what you did mean by that um yes I, it's it's also something i even talk about in the free chapter of the redline course um talk about the difference between a frequency mistake and a fundamental mistake mm. uh, which is I, I think those are terms i invented for the course but the idea is that in poker, you can, a fundamental mistake is the type of thing that if you do, uh, your opponent doesn't need to adjust in any way and you just lose money and he wins money. Uh, I think best example for something like that is, you know, open seven, open shove seven do soft suit UTG. Like there is no way that's not losing you money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if people just play normal. Um, uh, while a frequency mistake is, you know, bluff too much, bluff too little, see bet too much, see bet too little bluff catch too much, bluff catch too little, which are the type of mistakes that don't really cost you money unless your opponent is actively adjusting and exploiting you. Yeah, I and, love that. Uh, and, and part of what, what I say, in, and this is, in, in the, this is a free chapter, you just sign up on the site, you get to watch this chapter, but what, what I'm saying there is, uh, you know, uh, Fundamental, like not making fundamental mistakes is extremely important, but a lot of players, uh, kind of blue line players, they get caught up and they don't want to be making frequency mistakes and they put tons of effort there. And, and that's really a very unproductive way to, to use your energy. Uh, and a red line player, rather than, you know, trying to not make frequency mistakes, he wants to learn how to recognize frequency mistakes and learn how to exploit them. So while, it, while the other guy is like, uh, you know, trying to sing the perfect song and never get any note off tune, the red line player is just sitting on the, in the audience and every off tune note, he just throws a tomato at you and, and steals <laughs> some of your money. <laughs> 
so so kind of something like that i i would say in terms of uh and and both approaches work if you can do them well like one one of the things in poker is uh now when when you're sitting at a nine-handed table, for example, uh, maybe three of the regulars will be top five players in, in the world, but you'll always have a few guys who are really bad. They're making really big mistakes, uh, hopefully, at your table. And to get the highest win rate at the table, you can get win rate against the guys who are really, really good, but you can also gain extra win rate against the guys who are really bad. And, you, you know, money is money. It doesn't matter who, who you win it from. So learning how to beat players who are making mistakes is often in a much easier and more profitable way to spend your energy than learning how to defend yourself perfectly so you know you're balanced and the best players in the world can't exploit you and uh, yeah you you know what I mean I guess I, I do and this is um, uh, I don't want to say a battle but uh, <laughs> something that I, I try to explain to a lot of people uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm coaching a lot of people who are playing relatively small stakes and one of the things that they worry about is well, how am I ever going to get better you know if, if I'm you know playing 2-5 like how am I ever going to get good enough to play you know I have to play against better players in order to get better and um, I don't think that's true at all <laughs> like I think that the, no no the opposite is the truth right. playing against good players stunts your growth as a because most of the win rate is against bad players. Exactly. Yeah, I, I would say the, the fundamental skill in poker is is being able to take maximum advantage of weak players, and it's easier to learn that at small stakes. I mean, and you do you see the same kinds of mistakes. Like I think that in I mean there are obviously there there are gigantic fish at all stakes, but they're less common at, at the higher stakes, and often um, the the mistakes that you see there are they're of the same sort, but they're not as blatant as the mistakes that you see at, at lower stakes. So I think it's kind of like, I don't know, man, really? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's like, uh, I always think of it like a bit of a pyramid. Like once you get to really high stakes, uh, any like billionaire or multimillionaire recreational who just wants to play, he will always play the highest stakes. Mm -hmm. So at the highest stakes, you often have people who are, you know, we, we had, we were playing like a 200, 400 game in a casino once. And and we had a guy, you know, full ring, uh, playing 95 VPIP, uh, getting a stack in every second hand. And he, he didn't care about the money. Like, so at, at the really high stakes, you get some really crazy players who are, you, you know, they just want to gamble and $1 million is nothing to them. And, you know, let's go. <laughs> So I, I would say that the in-between stakes, like 5, 10, 10, 20, you probably don't get the craziest fish. But once you start going really high, the, the fish get crazy again. Yeah, I have... I uh, have the a, recreationals, um, I mean, yeah. I, I have a co-host on this show who was not able to join us today, but one thing he, he's fond of saying is that um, the, the toughest game in the room is often the second biggest game. The second... Exactly, exactly. The second... The biggest game is not going to be tough usually. Right. Or not, not like the regulars might be tough, but honestly, they might just be, you know, bum hunters with with a. Oh, this is politically correct to say I'm not. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, bum bum hunters with a with a big bankroll or stakers or something. Um, not not necessarily, you know. Everyone at the biggest game is a very good player in the classic sense of. You know, when you're an, an NL 500 player, you're like, oh, if I sit with those guys, those guys will crush me. But no, not not necessarily. They're, they they don't necessarily do anything that, that's going to be good against you specifically. 
Yeah, this is something that I felt like stunted my, um, at least the, the growth of my, my bankroll early in my career. Cause I, I told you, you know, I started playing online in like 2005. Uh, so, you know, there were a lot of big games going online where, in retrospect, like people were terrible. And I'm sure if I was beating like 100 NL, I could have been beating 1000 NL. Um, but I didn't, um, I, I had it in my head. I was like, well, people must be so good to be playing at those, those, I was just like very intimidated <laughs> yeah, yeah. by the idea of, of moving up. And yeah. I mean, some of that was financial, not that I didn't have the bankroll for it, but I just like, I didn't fully have the stomach for it. Like online poker still felt like something that was just too good to be true where I was like, I have to like, hold on to this money. I can't like, so I mean, some of it was like that risk aversion, but yeah, I think part of it was just that not, not fully accepting that there are going to be bad players at, at all stakes. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of people have this where, um, you know, I, I had this with friends the first time we went to Vegas, um, which was maybe, I don't know, maybe 2012. Um, we went to Vegas and we all sat at like 500 an hour or something at the Rio. And, and my friends kept telling me about hands where they were like, uh, there was this good regular with a hoodie and he kept <laughs> rebetting me really aggressively. He's playing really well. And I kept telling him, you know, just because someone has a hoodie, that doesn't make them a good a good regular. Just because someone's rebetting you aggressively, that doesn't make them good. And I was telling him, you know, just the fact that this guy is playing NL500, which is the lowest stake that they had in cash games means he's probably not a very good player. And, and you, you need to kind of get that through your head. And it's tough because there's, you know, I'm also playing NL500, so am I not a good player? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, I don't know, why are you playing it? Like, my friends were not professional poker players. They were like ex-professional poker players at that stage. But, uh, yeah, th there's this tendency that a lot of people have to give their opposition a lot of credit. Um which the more experience you get, the more you realize uh, a lot of the guys that you're playing against, uh, you, you'd win a lot more if you give, gave them less credit. Mm -hmm. you, you wouldn't be, you know, on the river when they go all in, you wouldn't be like, uh, ah, should I call this combo or follow this combo? How are my blockers? And not, not that kind of thought process, but rather... Like, I don't think this guy has it in him to make a big bluff, so I'll just fall. And that's actually a much more effective thought process uh, against a lot of the guys that, that you play against. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found helpful, because I, I, I have been prone to that same kind of intimidation of like, oh, that, that guy's a disheveled 20-something. He must be great at poker. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, is seeing people i mean obviously this, this really only works in live poker unless someone's going crazy in the chat box or something but um just seeing someone's kind of like emotional bearing and watching like the, the number of times that i've been that like someone has like sort of seemed good or like carried themselves as as though they were a very good player and then i see something just sort of pretty routine bad luck you know they they three bet with ace king and they missed the flop or something and then you can just see that they're like angry about it and it's immediately all my respect for that person just goes out the window and i'm like oh okay you're just like a uh uh snowflake yeah yeah i mean it, 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 it takes a while. I guess you need to grow grow older a bit to, to realize these things. Because um, when, when, when you get into poker, uh, it, it, it's different than most other fields in a way. Like uh, when you get to chess, the guys with a high rating are really, really good. 
And, and a lot of fields in life are like that, like the guys with a math doctorate know a ton of math. Uh, but in poker, the only thing you have to measure people is what table they're sitting, and that actually has nothing to do with their poker ability. It's often how risk, how how much do they like risk and gambling, and how much money do they have? Uh, like, uh, you know, I I moved up stakes very slowly because I was very risk averse. Uh, other people move up stakes very fast without necessarily being very good. Uh, or with being very good, you know, you, you could have either one. I, I had one of my roommates moved up from 1, 2 to 25, 50 in the span of one year. Wow. Uh, but then he ran like eight buy-ins on the review and busted his bankroll. So, uh, yeah, you, you get all sorts. So I had wanted to ask you, and then we ended up diving straight into um, theory stuff, which was awesome. But, uh, you know, what, what was your, your journey for getting into poker? I know you're, uh, among other things, a world champion Magic the Gathering player. Um, was, that, was that kind of your first game that you took seriously? Uh, yeah, Ma Magic was the first game I took seriously. I really loved playing Magic. Uh, I was, yeah, pro probably you know just weekends playing it all the time with friends till four in the morning and went to lots of professional tournaments over the years um but yeah at, at some point i felt like uh i, I need to let go of magic and uh, i was actually at, at this point uh I just finished my ba in the university i was working as a programmer uh, and a few of my friends started playing poker and one of the guys who like the I, I know ha I have like the world champion title but this guy was a better player than I was uh, which like as a poker player you can appreciate because there's variance right to win the world championship it's just a card game tournament mm -hmm. like Jamie Gold is not the best poker player just because he won the world championship <laughs> uh, so, so same. I, I was really good at magic, but this guy was definitely better. Than uh, it that sounds like you were just the Jamie Gold of the magic world. Uh, <laughs> it, I, it, it sounds like no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> but like, I, I, I won lots of tournaments before the world championship, but uh, or local tournaments at least. Uh, but, but, but this guy was just something else. So, uh, yeah, he he he'd actually started playing poker. He was playing PLO. And he made good money, and and he. You know, it, it, it gets really tempting when, like, you've been, you, you love playing cards, uh, you're going to work every day, but, like, your passion has always been playing cards, and then one of your buddies from playing cards tells you, oh, you, you know, I, I made $10,000 playing poker, and, you know, I, I wasn't making very much money at, at an entry-level programming job. So, uh, yeah, what, what, what we decided to do was... Uh, we moved into the same apartment for a year, four friends, and kind of uh, helped each other progress with poker. We had a shared poker bankroll, so we were sharing each other's action. And uh, one, th this guy was just playing PLO mainly. Uh, but that, that's kind of how I got started in poker. Uh, and uh, yeah, it just started going well, and it's the same kind of thing I always loved. So uh, just the fact that you can make a living uh, playing a game you love is uh, tough to walk away from. I guess, uh, considering the alternatives. Um, I, I don't know, did, did you ever have a real job before you started like doing full-time poker? Um, I was 
the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization. So what, one of the games that I was into, um, I, I was also an avid magic player, but um, one of the things that I was into, I was a competitive debater. So I was like on my high school's debate team. And uh, I later started an organization that was um, starting debate programs in the Boston public high schools. Um, so, I mean, that was a job in the sense of it was a lot of work. Yeah. Um, it was not yeah. a job in the sense of I was not getting paid for it. Uh, so <laughs> p- poker has always been my, um, my my primary, if not my only source of um, income. But uh, it has not always been the, the place where uh, all of my effort was being directed. Yeah, I, I think for Walt, it's worth like the, the, the magic, the gathering background ties in really well with, with the red line style. Um, ma- magic, like one of the things when you play magic that, that struck me as I was playing was uh, we would only play live tournaments and, and you'd have one tournament every month or something. Mm-hmm. And very often in magic, if you made like one tiny mistake, the game would snowball out of control and, and you could tell that that one mistake was, was the cause of the, the reason you lost. So, uh, and, and you can't fold in magic, right? You always like do your best to win <laughs> on, on like that. That's one of the tough things for me in poker is folding actually, which, which also helps your red line not folding. Like for anyone who wants a higher red line and doesn't care about his win rate, just click the call button. <laughs> screen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think one, one of the things that, that stayed with me in poker was uh, I don't care how big the pot is if it's like two big blinds or ten big blinds or a hundred big blinds uh, I was like fully focused and in the mode of like I don't want to make this one mistake and then have to drive home and wait a month for the next tournament and that kind of stayed with me as a as a mindset thing in poker that's interesting. Uh, and, and I think that that's a really big difference between high stakes players and low stakes players is how much you care about, uh, you know, what you do with your hand when there are two big blinds and a limped pot and it's been checked down to the river or whatever. Yeah, I, I call that the, the killer instinct. Like, just wanting to get every decision right as opposed to, you know, caring about having a winning night or caring about winning the pot or something like that. But to the more just like, I don't, I, I want to, I mean, I feel like on the one hand, you have to give yourself permission to make mistakes. But at the same time, I think you have to care a lot about not making mistakes even when the pot is small or I, I mean i guess part of it is just like recognizing that the small pots do matter a lot even though they don't feel like they do yeah i, I think tommy angelo talked about this once he was talking about do you know tommy angelo uh he was the second guest we ever had on this show and he has been our second oh. most frequent guest of all time he's arguably the reason we started this show we often say is so we had an excuse to talk to tommy angelo Okay, okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, one, one thing that I remember from him was he was talking about the concept of, uh, hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but reciprocity? Uh, yes, like that, that? That, reading that article from him was probably the single biggest aha moment I've ever had in poker. And yeah, like what, what, what this says, uh, maybe all our listeners have heard this every other podcast if he's on all the time, but, <laughs> uh, but basically that... Uh, what Matt like you're constantly trading mistakes with your opponents and uh, if you know I'm gonna have aces versus kings you're gonna have aces versus kings I'm gonna have set over set you're gonna have set over set so the place you get an edge is the place where you're winning more money than he would in the opposite situation and very very often that has to do with decisions in very small pots 
uh, and very marginal hands rather than you know oh should should i fold this uh, kings on the river because he check raised or whatever and i don't think he's bluffing that's not necessarily the win rate determining spot mm-hmm. uh because you because you like you do your best but i don't know if you can play that different than anyone else like be- better than anyone else significantly uh, but there are so many spots where nobody puts any effort into where you can get huge edges really easily and and those often have to do with pots that have uh, you know less than 10 big blinds in them yeah and i also think those are um at least from from the perspective of a coach it's very common like people want to talk about those big pots because it, they feel very weighty and they they stick in people's heads for a long time where that you know if, if they lost a 200 big blind pot there are people who remember that months later they're still you know wondering not even necessarily kicking themselves because they don't know if they did something wrong but they're wondering if they did something wrong or wondering like how could i have done something <laughs> differently there yeah, yeah, yeah but often those i mean first they're spots that don't come up very often so even if you do i mean even if you are consistently making mistakes mistakes when you get check raised on the river in 200 big blind pots it just doesn't happen that much so it's not the end of the world and like when it's a very close decision like that between like it's just often the case that if you have a pure bluff catcher and you're facing a you know a big bet from a polarized range on the river um there's no theoretically correct thing for you to do i mean we can it kind of just comes down to like either a frequency decision or just what was your read on that player but it's um it may not be the case that you know, th- th- there's a lot to talk about <laughs> for a hand like that as it, you know if, if it comes down to like you're consistently sizing your continuation bets badly or c- continuation betting in spots where you shouldn't or just something that it's much less sexy but it comes up a lot more often and there's a real lot of like you know you're making i guess what you would call a fundamental error rather than a frequency error um, those are often the more important things to talk about from a from a win rate perspective yeah, and, and, and I guess I, I would add kind of two things about the, the big pot scenario you talked about. Mm-hmm. I think one is that just kind of by the nature of being humans and being emotional, there's a fairly decent chance that whenever you're facing an all-in bet on the river with a bluff catcher, you're going to be a bit tilted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like even if you've worked with your coach or, or your friends or your analysis on the spot it's just tough to get a coherent thought process and not be affected emotionally um, and be very often when you analyze those spots and, and this is a tendency i have also with a lot of students is they would be like oh should, should i have called or folded the river and you know we look at it and i'm like you know i think you should have folded calling is probably like a three big blind mistake <laughs> right uh, or or like a one big blind mistake and the pot was like 350 big blinds and the guy's ah shit so i deserve to lose i punted the one and a half big blinds. <laughs> no, that's not how it works it, it's a small it's a small spot you shouldn't spend your time and your energy on spots that are rare and and, and low ev um exactly like you were saying the the very basic stuff like uh how to size your continuation bets which boards to continuation bet on and especially how to play future streets and and tons of things around that area even how to play pre-flop properly has so much more contribution to your win rate than uh you know these spots where even if you know what to do there's a 50 percent chance you're tilted and you'll just fuck up anyway (laughs) Yeah, and the the thing I, about being—I always tell my students, by by the way—in in big bluff catching spots, I, I always like if if you're not sure what you to do with a bluff catcher and your hand is aces or kings, then definitely fault. Yeah, 
because when you have aces or kings, you really want to call. So the fact that you're not sure means that it's definitely a fault. Yeah, I, I call that the calling demon. They, they, we're always kind of looking for like no one wants to fold, and and the bigger your hand is, the less you want to fold it. So your your brain is naturally going to do the work of of trying to find a call for you. And if you get a feeling of like, hey, maybe I should fold this set, and like that that feeling has managed to like fight its way through all of the natural inclinations that you have towards calling, you should probably take that feeling pretty seriously. Yeah, and vice versa. If you're really thinking seriously about calling river with ace high or bottom pair or something, there's a decent chance that that's what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't take this to the tables, obviously, for the <laughs> podcast. But, uh, but, but yeah, like we're emotional creatures when we play poker. A, a lot of the... You, you know, me and Bart, you, you, you told me when we talked before that you know Bart. Uh, Bartian, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, me and Bart once did a, a timing tell project where we we just sat watching hands for for hours and tried to just based on people's timing say whether whether they had it or not. Uh, because when someone's making a big bet on a river, I, like we said, the the theory will have you you know the call calling with this blocker is plus two big blinds, calling with that blocker is minus two big blinds. But if, if you have a, a timing tell uh, which gives you like 5% extra chance to, to estimate the result correctly, that, that's worth a lot more. Uh, so there, there are tons of these things going on. So why, why I think, I, I guess we agree that poker shouldn't really be very mechanical mm -hmm. these days. I, I was going to say also when you were talking about... Um the the like that we're already tilted you know when, when we're facing that big bet with the um with the bluff catcher i think one thing that that studying game theory has definitely helped me to understand that i, I think a lot of people have not yet internalized is that most of the money that you're losing in that hand you've already lost once you get check raised exactly like if, exactly. if you're thinking like this is a plus 12 big blind value bet and then now you get check raised and you have a bluff catcher like you've already lost 11 big blinds <laughs> This is a zero EV spot, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And unless you have some some voodoo magic to soul read your opponent. Yeah. And and I say voodoo magic with, with great respect because sometimes you do. Right? Like sometimes, especially in live poker, sometimes you know the guy's just gonna give something away and you know, all, all the theory goes out the window. Mm -hmm. But uh but but I think internalizing that uh, people often ask, you know, if you three bet kings and it comes an ace high board, what do you do? Or if you three bet ace king and you miss, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And the answer is often, you know, you check and you hope the other guy doesn't bet because if he bets, your EV goes to crap. Mm -hmm. but, like, what can you do? <laughs> right? That's how the hand works. Yeah, I, I think you use the term uh, align your expectations. Uh, it was a note that I made while I was listening to your to your videos, which I think is really nice because you're. Right, I mean, those are spots that that people want to ask about a lot, and I think it's just important to recognize that like. And I think I think the Kings one is more it's more obvious of just like okay well maybe Kings just isn't that profitable on an ace high board but you know uh, I think there's a tendency understandable for people to want to kind of envision the worst case scenario or envision the scenario that's going to be most difficult for them so when they're like well okay do I have to three bet with Ace King because what if I miss the flop then what do I do 
It's like, well, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the value of three betting ace king is that they might fold. And then some of the other value of three betting ace king is that you often will not miss the flop. And when you don't miss the flop, you have a very strong hand. So if you get too bad outcome, like you lose one flip and that your opponent doesn't fold, and then you've lost another coin flip and that you missed the flop, like, okay, you got unlucky in two ways. Maybe there's not a lot of value in this note of the game tree. That doesn't mean that anything has, has gone wrong. It's just, you know, you, you got unlucky in the same way that like you get unlucky when there's an ace on the flop and you're holding pocket kings. So it's not necessarily something uh, that, that, you know, it, it doesn't have to dictate. Like the fact that you're going to struggle in that situation doesn't mean that you shouldn't be three betting in hand. It just, you know, there's just not a lot of value there. Yeah, and I think this is one of the aspects of game theory, that the more you understand it, the easier it becomes to play. Uh, because, like like I, like I was saying, there's so much emotion when you're playing poker, it's very easy, uh, this is something common as well, to just get angry when someone three-bets you a lot, right? You're just like, this this, this son of a bitch is three-betting <laughs> me all the time, he's out to get me, I need to fight back, and, and, and really... You know, if you know how to play game theory, you understand that you don't need to fight back. Uh, like, if you recognize he's doing something, sure, go for it. But uh, but he's not getting you by, like, someone who bluffs you all the time, someone who three-bets all the time. Uh, the, he, they are making frequency mistakes. Uh, those are not necessarily, you know, they could be good against you, bad against you. It's not... Not something you need to, to get worried about or get emotional about. And, and the, the better that you understand the theory of your life, you know, I have an opening range. I know how to defend against three bets. I, it, it's fine that I got my king jack offsuit three times in a row and I have to fold. There's nothing going on that's special. Uh, just kind of a, internalizing that is really important because what happens very often to players, and, and this happens even at, at high stakes, but again, higher stakes, it happens less and less, is that it's, it's just difficult for people to lose a few pots in a row without going a bit off the rails mm-hmm. in, in the next one. Um, and, yeah, all, all this talk about, like, where can you get your win rate? A lot of your win rate could come just from kind of being chill about losing four hands in a row to the same guy and not being like, ah, this time he's out to get me, let's go all in with King Jack because he must be bluffing this time. Because uh, very, very often it's the opposite, right? If someone three-bet you twice in a row, if I three-bet you twice in a row, I'd be scared to three-bet you the third time because I'd, I'd be afraid <laughs> to start to fight back. So I need a really good hand the third time. And and people often think, no, if he did it three times in a row, he's out to get me. Where very often it's actually the opposite. I think ironically, too, you know, part of people's concern there, there, there's an ego bit about not wanting to look like a weak player not for any sort of strategic reason of like i don't want people to bluff me but just for ego reasons of i don't want people to think that i'm Mm -hmm. weak or think that i'm bad at poker and um you know ironically i the people who handle those situations badly are the people i think are bad at poker like if if you're the sort of person who's like oh you know i'm I'm mad at you because you three bet me three times and now i'm gonna make some like you know spewy play back at you like that's what makes you bad at poker if you can just calmly fold to each one of those three bets like that's much more intimidating to me like (laughs) i'm much more likely to think you're a good player if if you can just sort of calmly raise fold three hands in a row and that's one of the things I hate about good players mm-hmm. is I can get I can get a great heater against them. I I, I had this once heads up against a guy. Uh, 
I, I remember I was playing heads up against a friend uh, online. We did like an NL 200 practice match. And we, we didn't know each other's game too well. And, and I ran insanely hot. We, we played like 400 hands. I had 30% 3-bet during those hands, and I had only premiums 3-betting. I kept, you know, hitting every gut shot, two pair, <laughs> top pair sets. All the time I was triple barreling off my stack. I always had it, and he always folded. He just folded for two hours. <laughs> um, and, and it got to the... <laughs> I was just super, super impressed, to, to be honest, because cause he wasn't playing weak, right? Like, some people just fold everything, but this guy was, a, like, a good professional, and he just took a deep breath, and he was like, I'm, I'm just going to play my hand in this situation every single time. Uh, yeah, just a really important skill to, to be able to, to suck it up and, and take it. Like, some days you're destined to lose. If you can walk away from a live session knowing you've lost two buy-ins, even though you're the best player at the table, and just take it calmly, mm -hmm. kind of, that that's so much more important to your win rate than all the solver studying you could ever do. I um I I played a match on stream once against uh one of the like AI bots that's the you know. Uh, I, I believe the, the, the claim, at least, was that it was uh, better, you know, it could be basically any human, heads up, um, and uh, or have, have a positive expectation, you know, against any, any human, heads up. Um, and even playing again, like, no, like, I, I understand enough about how these bots are built to know that they're not doing anything exploitative, but, like, you still get that feeling a little bit of, like, is this thing picking on me? And you have to remind yourself, like, no, it literally is not, like, it, it can't, it couldn't if it wanted to. Yeah, it couldn't if it wanted to, but that, that being said, like, GTO poker is a lot, lot, lot more aggressive than most people that you're used to playing with play. Mm -hmm. Exactly because of all those small pot scenarios, uh, like a GTO bot, you'd be like, check down to the river, you bet two big lines, and he just check shops for a second. So that's <laughs> something like that, and you're like, what the hell are you doing? How can you do that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, G G GTO is insane. GTO is crazy, crazy, crazy aggro in some spots. And it, generally, when you play a, a GTO bot, if you wouldn't know, there's a decent chance you'd think it's just some crazy fish that you're playing against. A GTO does some, some really crazy stuff. Have you looked much at the... Um, uh, I'm blanking on the name of it. The, the one that played uh, six-handed... So like I mean, almost all of this AI work has been in heads up uh, spots, but there there was the um, the the one that that played uh, six handed, and and it does have some hands on um, on on YouTube where you can like see spots that it played. Have you have you looked at at that at all? Um, the one that played against like fifty different tracks, including Linus, something like that. I think so. Yes. Uh, so I, I haven't looked too much, but I have one, one, one of the, the guys I study poker with uh, ha has looked through those a lot and uh, came up with all sorts of theories for, for what was going on there. Yeah, it does a lot of quite surprising things. I, I, I did a similar project of, of trying to make sense of uh, some of its... Um, it's just I, I think heads up, it's a little easier to wrap your head around what's going on, um, especially if you understand game theory, because there's only so much that can be going on. But once you introduce multiple 
players and um, actually another one of the videos of yours that I watched was about you know three betting from the big blind against a single opponent versus squeezing from the big blind and um, I think this is, is I mean it's, it's a, a I would argue a broader point about multi-way pots in in general you tend to have more linear ranges because it's a lot less likely like it's 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 not that there aren't situations to do it, but it's a lot harder to fire an air ball in a multi-way pot because the chances of getting everyone to fold are, are much lower than they would be in a heads-up pot. But that doesn't mean that fold equity doesn't matter um, because it's often the case. I mean, very few hands don't care at all about fold equity before the river. So what's often happening in multi-way pots is you're assuming that someone is going to call your bet, but you're still benefiting from making those other players fold. And um, and, and so I, I think in a lot of situations, including like pre-flop squeezes, we tend to see more more linear ranges and also smaller bet sizes in multi-way pots as a rule uh yeah multi-way pots have kind of uh, conflicting incentives it's one of the the cool things about multi-way pots where uh say for example uh you open under the gun and i three bet you from under the gun plus one and i decide that i just want to three bet you really really wide so you're opening a 17 percent range and i will three bet you with the same 17 percent range for example i'll three bet you even really small just because i'm in position and, and fuck you i don't like it for some <laughs> reason uh, so what, what ends up happening when you look at gto is that that's actually bad for both of us right mm-hmm. it, it's bad for me uh and it's bad for you uh, so how can it be bad for both of us? Because everyone else at the table is benefiting from, from what I'm doing. Uh, because they get like tons of money in the pot to cold four bet with with a wide range. And for you it's bad because you know your range isn't doing too hot against a small three bet from the same range. It, it, it's not helping you that the time VPI being very high, even though there are people behind with hands. Um, and I think I, I actually had a real example of this recently where I was playing a nine-handed game where uh, there was one player and he was sitting directly to my left and whenever it came to him, he would always do the smallest raise possible. So if, if I limp, he would min-raise. If I min-raise, he would 3x. If I 10x, he would 11x. This is how the guy... I, I told you high-stakes games have, have good <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is how the guy was playing, and uh, so what what happens is this guy strategically he's like my best friend because I can limp, he'll min raise. I see what the entire table does, and then I decide you know do I want to squeeze, do I want to call, or what what do I want to do, right? So I actually am last to act in every hand I'm playing just because he's to my left. I get to always limp, he'll always raise, and I'll always have the opportunity to to re raise. Mm-hmm. You have these these crazy kind of dynamics going on multi-way, which, like you were saying, when, when it's two players in a hand, every dollar I win is a dollar you lose. There is there is no one else except the casino, and they have the rate cap, so at some point we don't even think about them. Uh, but whenever it's a multi-way pot, there, there are really crazy things going on, and pe- people can really shoot themselves in the foot, but that but like we were saying in the beginning, it, it's really important to understand uh, and th- this is something like full ring players uh, in-, in casino games need to understand. If if someone is opening a 40% range under the gun, then that's probably something you see somewhat often, right? In, in casino, 30 to 40% of hands uh, under the gun nine-handed. Uh, and he's-, he's opening maybe 4x or 5x. Uh, 
what 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 do you do against that when when you're in the blinds? How do you how do you crush this player? Um, what what what, what do you think? Uh, what, what do you do? So you're saying, this this is a player who's who he's he's under the gun. He's opening five x with like far too wide a range, essentially. Yes, yes, and, and you're in the or he's opening three x with too wide a range, and you're in the big blind. Uh, and we're assuming a scenario where everyone else has folded around to you. Yeah, yes, of course, of course. Um, I mean, my I guess my my general inclination is I want to be three betting more against people who are opening wider. Um, I guess we're not making any mm-hmm. assumptions about how he's responding to uh, to three bets. I mean, I guess in general, this is not like the rest of the table is benefiting a lot more from this than I am. Like his his mistakes. You're you're, you're, you're actually losing money because forty uh, percent range is a good range to open against the big blind. So th- this is actually really bad for you. If you could, you would switch positions at the table. That would be like the highest TV play for you. Yeah, so, so that he's not under the gun when I'm in the big blind. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You want to be in and want to like it. it, it it's funny, but uh, because of ego reasons, you're like, this guy's playing terrible. What do I do? I mean, you can play against the 40% range, right? You want a three bet as though he's opening 40% because that's what he's actually doing. Uh, but the way he's playing is bad for him and bad for you, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. So the fact that there's a bad player at the table might actually be bad for you in a full ring table. And that's not something you, you might not think about, but uh, so sometimes just your relative position at the table uh, to someone playing very loose just makes the game very bad for you. If you needed to uh, to wrap up now, I wanted to give you a chance to, you know, plug whatever you wanted to plug and that kind of thing. I'd be really happy if people check out my YouTube channel and website. Uh, YouTube channel is just me reviewing hands and and some live plays and stuff. Uh, uh, with the approach I'm talking about uh, all, all the time with you, I think we we kind of share the same philosophy towards poker, which is fun. Um, and don't get that too often when I speak to people. More people are more in the. Most people are more in the. No, let, um, too too afraid to be exploited camp when, when they're playing. Um, but yeah, ch- I, I, I'd I'd be happy if people check out the YouTube channel, check out the website. There is free content on the website, so there is an article about showdown value bluffs and which is free. For example. Uh, the fundamental frequency mistakes video is something that's free, and yeah, I think, think uh, if you guys like the approach, would would be happy if you check it out. And uh, I'll I'll have links see. in the uh, in the show notes, but this is uh, Gorilla Poker, and it's uh, Gorilla G U E R I I L L A, not uh, G O R. Although probably that would yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, I bet a, yeah, a Google be- search for Gorilla Poker with an O would probably turn you up anyway. I'm not sure it would. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I'll tell you where the name came from, though. Please. Um, I, I have a, a coaching for profit. It's been running since roughly 2014. And one of the first guys I coached, uh, we were talking about exactly one of the concepts that, that we're saying, where we looked at the solver output and we were like, uh, you know, people don't actually do this thing, what should we do if they don't? And, and we got a response that was pretty crazy, uh, where, uh, long story short, back then, uh, there, there was a spot, I can't tell you exactly which one, 
but that uh, he would ne- we would never call any hand on the flop. We'd always raise, raise or fold, no calling, pretty much, uh, which, you know, create kind of a crazy dynamic. And, and this was based on, you know, expecting the other guy to react in a certain way. And uh, this guy had just joined my coaching for profit. We were doing this. He, he was one of the first guys I coached there. And we were doing this for, for a while. And he got these uh, texts from regs who knew him from back in the day because he was a longtime regular. And they were like, what's this crazy type of gorilla poker that you're playing? Someone wrote in there. Because you keep raising in all these spots. So that, that's where the name came from anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, I think... Uh, I, I think generally the like what 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 my approach to poker is is uh, you know you learn how the game works but but the way the game works is uh, if if you think about martial arts martial arts uh, when you look at the the grandmasters uh, they're doing like an intricate dance but there are a ton of things that they're not doing because the other guy has the appropriate defense in place like he's lifting his hand slightly above his forehead he's tilting his body back he's ready with a kind of counter move so there's a ton of stuff that that's going on that's not evident to the naked eye when you're looking at uh, two two great people fight mm-hmm. and the same thing is going on uh, with poker when you look at the solver output uh, but because we're not computers, uh, what we want to know is what's the move and what's the counter. And then when you fight someone in poker, when you play against someone, you want to see, wait, it, does he have the correct defense up? And if not, you just sucker punch him and you don't <laughs> worry about balance or anything, right? You, like he, he doesn't have his left hand up. You just hit him in, on in the left side of his head and the fight's over. <laughs> Uh, so so th- this is like in my eyes, this is what you use solvers for, like to, to study all these spots. Uh, the, the better you study, the more spots you have uh, where you're like, oh, you recognize stuff like he's not doing A, he's not doing B, he's not doing C. The more of those you have in your arsenal, uh, the, the stronger of a player you are, at, at least like uh, according to, to my philosophy in poker. Yeah, I, mean, I think obviously that's like a, a skill that needs to be cultivated. But I think the other thing is you have to be open-minded about your own I mean, you know, willingness to do stuff that sounds kind of crazy. Like you're saying, you know, like never having a uh, having no calls on the flop or you, know, you were talking about it. And it's very obviously correct. If you have a player on your left who's min-raising every hand, of course you want to start limping. But you know, there are people who have in their heads just like limping is for fish. Like you never open limp. And uh, so, I mean, you, you have to understand like that's a fine rule to teach someone who's new to poker to say like, you're probably going to do open limping badly or it's not often correct to open limp, so just don't do it. But ultimately you have to understand, you know, there, there's a reason for that rule. It, it is, exactly. and like if your opponent is doing the thing that would incentivize, like you have to be 100% willing to just like do stuff that would seem fishy in a different context and you have to be open-minded about that. Yeah, it's like, like I'll, I'll be honest, limping is a really good play in poker if you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. There are situations where limping pre-flop is by far the best play. Um, and, you know, re- recognizing those is worth a lot, but for most people, it, I'm, I'm the same as you. Like, if I were teaching someone to play, there were would be a bunch of good things that I would tell them to never do. Like, never limp, just don't even think about it, never donk that. There are spots where you should, but just never do it. And like, we'll get there in a year, maybe, mm-hmm. if we work together. But uh, 
starting out, you, you shouldn't do those things. Those are kind of once you have the basics down, you're playing well, you're not making fundamental mistakes uh, or not very big ones, then we can start talking about uh, like when should you limp, how can you use limping as like a really great tool in, in, in your play. Um, limp 3-betting is a really good play mm -hmm. to, to do, for example, in, in live games, I imagine. Uh, I, I don't know if that's something you talk about, but like Im imagine you're a regular in a live game, right? Uh, everyone there knows you're a regular and you have deuces under the gun and you, you, you say, ah, you know, opening's not too good, Let, let's just limp deuces this time and someone isos and you 3-bet him, he'll be 100% sure you have aces because you never limp, right? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with um, the other thing you're saying about limping of just you get the advantage of seeing what everyone else is going to do. I mean, wh when I'm limping, it's often I don't necessarily have a plan of it's not like I'm limping to three bet, like I'm limping to see what everyone else does. <laughs> and depending on especially when you're playing with people who have like sizing tails or they have, um, you know, exactly. one person is, is going to raise too often. Another one's very nitty. Like if, if the nitty guy raises, I'm, I might just fold. And if a different person who I know, you know, he, he would raise bigger if he had a strong hand he makes a small raise and three people call now i'm gonna squeeze you know so it's like getting to see what they do uh, i mean that's another thing about it it's just playing exploitatively in general is if you know that your opponents are going to have certain exploits further down the game tree you're incentivized to try to get them to that part of the game tree more often like if you know that they've left the river too much you want to see more rivers against them because hands that you know might otherwise be marginal calls on the turn if you can anticipate getting more than your share of EV based on taking advantage of this mistake on the river, now you have a lot more incentive to get to the river so that you can give them the chance to make that mistake. I, I, I can tell you, you spoke to Bart. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the first things Bart told me was like, you know, if you have a bet sizing tell against someone, don't see that. Just check back and let him tell you what, what cards he has. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, for, for sure. That, that, there's a ton of that stuff going on in poker, which is part of the, the reason the game's still so fun, and, and solvers just give you kind of more weapons in that direction. They also give you some boring players who try to imitate the solver, but the, the truth is if you go deep enough, all the m most of the guys imitating the solver are actually making the same types of mistakes as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, not not the like top top guys, but but a lot of guys, uh, and definitely, if we're talking about like an NL five hundred live game. Everyone is is making all the same mistakes. They're very very obvious once you start studying, and the counters are very obvious. And then there are very like you definitely shouldn't play GTO. There are very very clear things you should be doing there. Um, I'll just tell you that it's been a great pleasure uh, speaking with you. I hope we'll get a chance to do it again, maybe even in person sometime. Do you do you ever um, do you go to like WSOP or anything, or are you just strictly cash? Um, I I would go uh, in another life where I didn't have a toddler uh, at okay. home. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe in a few years. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you anyway. Um, this should be up uh, like a week from Monday, most likely. Um, I'll let you know, and uh, I'll tag Gorilla Poker on, uh, on, on Twitter when it's up. Um, and yeah, just it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again. Uh, thank you, too. Take care. Open for
devotion of a car the fair passage of a bill And the will sign us into law I know you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't 